Notice that we are still burning candles as a reminder to think about and to pray for Ukraine and the war that's going on there. And I wanted to give you a little update about the things that I know, the things that I've heard. And um, I'm in kids church this morning, so I'm not able to give you the announcement or the information in person. So um, I wanted to tell you though, that cool stuff is happening in the midst of really hard stuff. And um, we have a relief arm of our denomination, the Christian Missionary Alliance, that you might have heard us already refer to as CAMA Services. And that stands for Compassion and Mercy Associates. And um, they are kind of like the Red Cross. Um, and they, when tragedy hits, they look around and figure out who are the churches and the leaders, um, Christian leaders on the ground, and what is the best way to empower them and equip them to respond, um, how Jesus might want them to. And so um, I wanted to share with you a video um, from a woman named Angelica. It used to be Goots, but she got married. Um, but I knew her as Angelica Goots when I got to be with her when we took a team from Brookview um, to serve in Ukraine in Kiev back in November 2018. And Angelica reports um, how they are providing, they're buying food and um, they're providing medical supplies and medicines to the elderly. Um, and they have a, a team or a, someone in their church that owns a restaurant near the train station in Kiev. And they open up the restaurant every night for a free meal for anyone who needs it. And so um, as part of the food distribution, the medicines being handed out, and then that meal, they're able to sit and um, pray with people, pray for people. Um, they gather every night in their church to read from the Psalms and then to pray as well. And so just um, God is coming and drawing near to them and they're seeing him on the move. And I just want to give a huge thanks to those of you that donated financially already um, to this work and them being able to be the hands and feet of Christ in this situation. And if you're interested in, in donating because you haven't had a chance yet, you can do that through the Brookview Church website at brookviewchurch.com and you find the giving um, tab. And I think it's pretty user-friendly to be able to navigate to that. And so um, thank you for the way that you are loving people tangibly by supporting the needs that they have over there financially as well. Hi, my dear friends, I'm recording this video for my American and English friends that are praying for us here in Ukraine. I just want to tell you a little bit about our situation here. My husband and I are in Kyiv right now, in the capital. We decided to stay here because we wanted to help people who also stayed here with food, with transport, because we have a car with us, and with medications as well. People are in big need here, especially elder people and people who have kids 
So yeah, we are at the moment in Kyiv and we on regular basis hear sirens, air raid sirens and many people uh, go to shelters and they sleep there and they are afraid and they are in need and we are here to help them as much as we can as long as it's possible so please pray for our country pray for uh, pray sorry pray for this war to end uh, pray for our safety here in Kyiv for me and my husband Michael so we can keep helping our people here that are in need please we need this we need uh, prayer support when I watch this video I see um, a woman who is tired and I can only imagine what life for her is like right now and her request is to pray. And um, I just wanna encourage you, I wanna remind myself to not stop praying. And um, these people need us to stand in support. They're weary and they're tired. And this is just a beautiful gift that we can give. Um, I was talking to Emily Callen this week and she said that they're lighting a candle at their dinner table every night and taking a moment to pray for Ukraine. And that's just so cool. That is so cool. And so I just want to invite a few of you who might be so inspired to do that, um, to do that with your family, to do that by yourself in whatever way, maybe as a part of your um, devotional time that you have, quiet time with God, um, you would be willing to do something like that. So I um, just want to remind us to, to keep on praying and to be standing with our brothers and sisters in Christ in this way. What a beautiful thing that we get to do together. Good morning, you guys. Good morning. Um, I'm just going to pray real quick for us. So if you just want to bow your head with me. Um, Dear Lord, um, I just want to pray for the people of Ukraine um, and that you just send the Holy Spirit to surround them, to be the comforter and encourage them. Um, God, I just pray a prayer of protection for those people over there and everybody affected by what's going on and the war over there in Ukraine. It just saddens my heart. And God, I just want you to be there for all of them. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Um, we're gonna shift gears a little bit and go right into announcements. It's like a, you know, when you don't know how to drive a clutch, it kind of. <laughs> so, we're gonna we're gonna do that and we're gonna go into announcements. Okay, so <laughs> here we go. Um, <laughs> people still drive clutches. I do. So, yeah. Um, so we're first things first is we got uh, spring clean coming up um, in about two weeks and it is a really cool opportunity to um, serve in a very purposeful way and then also do it in community. So everybody here gets to kind of like pitch in, clean here and there, and then also like it's your guys' space that you use, you guys are here. Um, and so being able to contribute in a way that you can actually see the results is pretty cool, you know? And then also like if you bring kids and they're cleaning in the kids area, 
they leave a mess all the time. And I know like when they clean it themselves, they might tell each other like, yo, you know, pick it up, you know, like, come on, get it together. So it might be a little bit of a win-win, you know? So spring clean's coming up. Um, so uh, also, if you plan on going, please RSVP to let us know uh, how much food by filling out your online communication card or texting the word spring to our Brookview number. Um, yeah, that's that. Moving on. <laughs> going to the table. <laughs> so um, the table is also about two weeks. It's actually the day after spring clean, so it's like a little cool transition that we get to clean everything up, and then boom, voila, community. So, um, so we're excited to gather around tables and share a meal together. Um, we're needing help with setup, tear down, people to bring a casserole dish, um, and table centerpieces. So if you can help out, please let us know by filling out the communication card or text Jen or the Brookview number um, directly. And then uh, additionally, we won't have a live stream that morning, but you can still RSVP to do a table online. So like it won't be live streamed, but there will be an online table for you to join if you wanted to join that way. Then, lastly, should I do it again? <laughs> okay, we're going to the online communication card. So if you go ahead and fill that out, we'd love just to hear from you um, what's going on. Um, and it's also a good time to write down a prayer request. Um, and if you're just wanting more prayer for Ukraine, that's a cool way to um, just communicate that too. So um, fill those out, and that's all I got for you. Moving it on. you guys today is a landmark day one that has felt at least to me long overdue yes after so much turmoil and strife and just waiting and waiting you guys today is the day finally MLB spring training officially launches so that's huge and I know you guys are all excited about that Also in the news, since we last met, Russell Wilson got traded. If you need grief counseling, the way that you would let us know is to go to your online communication card. Okay, lastly, you guys, it's so good to see some faces in here. My gosh, I talked to an elementary school teacher who came in this morning and said, I cannot wait to be with my students and see some faces. Oh, gosh. Okay, so this is the third week in this series on community, and so far, we've talked about some really simple but very important ideas. In week one, we saw that for Jesus, a church is primarily a family. So it's, it's not primarily a building, it's not primarily an event on Sundays, it's not even primarily a nonprofit that does good in a community or good in the world. It's a family. 
When we get adopted by God, we automatically inherit brothers and sisters. And so learning to live in family is a really big deal. And then last week, we looked at being a family or a community of honor. Honor means to value one another, to treat one another as treasured. And when we do that, we saw we can receive from one another. We can bring out the best in each other, and we can walk through conflict in much healthier ways. Today, I want us to look at two issues that consistently impact community. And when these are not handled right, they impact it in a very negative way. And, and the two issues are stories we tell ourselves and unmet expectations. So anytime people gather in relationship, these two things are in play. But if we can get a handle on these, it postures us really, really well. So today is going to be like, at least the first half of it is going to be like crazy practical. And then we're going to turn our, our gaze to God and it'll get theological the second half of this thing. But let me, let's just dive in and, and talk, about, talk about this stuff. Okay, we're going to throw a video up here. And so this behind me is a very old video, and you can find this on YouTube. Now, if you're like my generation or older, so if you're like 28 or older, um, th this, might look, this might look like an Atari game to you. Right? Is anybody like, oh, that's kind of like combat or something? Anyway, or if you're like a hipster and, and you're like retro cool and you still play Atari, like, you, okay. So this is a video. This is a video from 1944. And it was used in a landmark psychology study called An Experimental Study of Apparent Behavior conducted by Fritz Heider and Marianne Simmel. The study in 1944 was groundbreaking for understanding the human psyche. So please just continue to watch the video while I explain how the experiment worked. People were told to watch this short film and were then asked to describe what's happening in this film. Now, if you're listening to this like on Spotify or iTunes or something like that, let me explain. The film shows two triangles and a circle moving across a plane. And then there's, a, there's also a stationary rectangle, and it's like partially open on one side, like, like a door with a hinge or something. Now, here's what made this study so significant and, and groundbreaking, again, in 1944. When asked what was happening in this very short film, only one test subject saw the scene for what it actually is. geometric shapes moving across a plane. <laughs> That's what this scene really is. Here's the thing, except for one subject, everybody else made up some elaborate story about what they were seeing. Like the big triangle is a bully trying to beat up the small triangle and, the certain, and take the circle home to his secret lair or something. Or there's like an angry, drunk dad who doesn't approve of his daughter's boyfriend, and so he's going after him. Or, or I like this one. This is a scene from a prison. The triangle is a big guy named Bubba. And the circle is a prison guard who's escorting the new guy to his cell, and then everything kind of breaks loose, and chaos just reigns from there. Okay, here's the point. Inside our heads, instead of registering inanimate shapes... Most people will watch this and imagine humans with vivid inner lives. 
And it happens automatically without us even realizing that it's happening. And what this study uncovered in the world of psychology is that as humans, we see the world in stories. Anytime we see almost anything, we make up a story. And these stories we tell ourselves, they affect our emotions. The stories that we create in our heads impact how we feel. For instance, you guys, the first time I watched this, I felt all this tension and sadness because clearly what I was seeing was this, a family. The big triangle is the dad. The little triangle is the mom. The little circle is their young child, their only child. The parents are separated and they're heading toward divorce and they are fighting for custody over their child. And at first, the dad kind of forces the child to go and live with them in the rectangle, but then the mom hires a very powerful attorney, and she breaks through, and she regains custody of the child, and they move far away. And then with the family completely broken, the dad self-destructs. I mean, this is kind of sad, right? Some of you are like, you're sad. You need counseling. Yes, I know. Okay, but all of this from geometric shapes moving across a plane. So here's the point of all of this. As humans, we are storytelling creatures. We tell ourselves stories to make sense of the world, and this can be really beautiful, but it can also lead to all kinds of problems in our relationships and in community. See, we we make up stories about why so-and-so looked at us that way. Right? We, or, or why so-and-so didn't text us back even though you know, we saw the dot-dot-dot bubble. Like, where was the text? We, we make up elaborate stories about our family or about our spouses or our bosses or our coworkers or about our life groups or our ID groups. We even make up stories about our pastors. John Orberg's a well-known author and pastor, somebody that I've read and followed for a long time. And I recently heard a story about that was, kind of, that was told by his wife, Nancy. She said a woman from their church came up to her one day after church and said, I noticed your husband's shoes and how he has scuffs on the top of his shoes. I know why his shoes are scuffed. And Nancy was like, wait, what? <laughs> First of all, why are you looking at my husband's shoes? Stop looking at my husband's <laughs> shoes. Second of all, what are you talking about? And so this woman from their church said, I know why there's scuffs on the top of your husband's shoes. It's because he's always kneeling and praying. And Nancy was like, uh, no, not at all. <laughs> right? And I, I need to like buff out my husband's shoes because that's just not, that's weird and that's just not even true at all. But this is what we do, right? We, we make up stories. Let me throw out a little scenario to you. Let's say I, I'm talking to you like right after church ends today. Like, um, we're just visiting right after the service ends, and you notice as you're talking to me that I'm, I'm kind of shifty, and I'm moving my feet a lot, and I seem kind of unsettled, and my arms are folded, and I'm not making a lot of eye contact, and just kind of, just a lot of movement. And so maybe you're brand new to our church, and you don't know me. And so you might think, wow, <laughs> like, he's not very good with people. Uh, you'd think a pastor would be better with people. Like, that's weird. Or if you know me pretty well, you might think, Jason was acting kind of weird. 
He wasn't very dialed into what I was saying, I don't think. So maybe he was like really bored by my story. Or, or maybe he saw someone more important than me and he, he, he just wanted out of the conversation. I'll bet that's it. Or maybe he, he, he didn't feel very good about today's message. And so he's just kind of depressed. Just really insecure. See, you could tell yourself any number of, of stories. But if you asked me and you said, hey, you seem a bit like not yourself. What's up? Like, are, are you like totally bored with our conversation? And I might say, no, 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 no. I'm, 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 actually, I'm actually riveted by our conversation. And I'm so happy to see you that I didn't want to just walk by. It's just that like, really, I have to pee. Right? Man, I got up early this morning. I loaded up on coffee, and I, I got to go, man. You're like, good, go. Okay, get out of here. My pastor has scuffs on his shoes. Obviously, he's a prayer warrior. My pastor is shifty after church. He isn't good with people. He doesn't value me. He's just bored. He doesn't care. Like, I just became the, the triangle in this story, right? And, and I do the same thing. This is exact, this is what we do. This is so natural. When I don't see someone for a long time at church, I start making up a story about why they're not at church anymore, right? And they become the triangle, and I know their motives, and I, and I, and I know their, their intentions and their struggles, and, and I'm sure of it. And this story that I tell myself, it makes sense to me. But, but these stories color how we see people, and they color, uh, and they impact our, our emotions. Uh, author Jerry Scazzaro, who writes a ton about emotional health, she explains how common this is for us in everyday life. She writes, these stories we tell ourselves have an enormous impact on our feelings. Consider the difference of what goes on in your mind when a friend who agrees to meet you for dinner is 40 minutes late. Now, she's writing this book to women. This is like emotional, this is the book is called Emotionally Healthy Women. She's writing to a woman who's about to have dinner with a man. How different are your feelings when you tell yourself, maybe he had an accident driving here, or this relationship is clearly more important to me than it is to him? Each interpretation generates a different feeling. Why? Because our feelings are closely related to the story we tell ourselves about the things going on around us. To quit faulty thinking and maintain good emotional and spiritual health, we must make an intentional decision to stop mind reading and to verify our assumptions by actually talking to people in person instead of in our heads. Like it's, it's, it's helpful to actually talk to people and get the real story. Now the book of Proverbs is a, is a book of wisdom just filled with like just nugget after nugget of wisdom in the Old Testament. And in Proverbs 18, there's a ton of wisdom about this very thing. For instance, in verse 2, uh, it says, Fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in airing their own opinions. So fools don't find pleasure in trying to more deeply understand a situation. When something goes wrong or there's a breakdown in communication, fools don't try to understand what's actually going on. They prefer to read minds make up a story, and then air their opinions. Like they make up a story, and then they tell the story. A few verses after that in Proverbs 18, in verse 13, it says, to answer before listening, okay, to respond before getting someone else's side of the story, hearing what's going on inside of them, to answer before listening, it says, is, that is folly and shame. 
Wise people dig deeper into what's going on. They ask questions. They don't assume they already know. They seek more information and they operate with relational skills. And to operate with relational skills in this arena requires a lot of different things, but let me highlight two. It requires active listening and it requires humility. I mean, active listening means that I resist assumptions and I ask questions with an open mind. Like, what are you thinking right now? I mean, I'm, I'm noticing something. What, what are you thinking right now? What, what do you think is going on? What's, what's happening right now from your perspective? How are you feeling? Are you feeling angry, frustrated, hurt, ignored? Do you have to pee? <laughs> right? And what goes hand in hand with active listening then is humility. Because it's realizing that you actually can't read someone else's mind. You, you can see behaviors and you can make assumptions, but that's all. And, and over the years, this is it's really funny. I've heard a ton of people say this. It's usually women, not to gender stereotype, but it is. Um, sometimes men say this too. But over the years, I've heard a ton of people say something like this. You know what? I'm very good at reading people. Are you? Yes, I have this, I just have this gift of discernment. I'm, I'm kind of like an expert at, at reading people. Huh. Now, it's true that some people are better at noticing like feelings in a room, right? Like someone can be hurt or upset or confused or whatever. And there are some people that, and you've been around them, and maybe you're one of them, they just have a hard time picking up on it. Right? There are people that, that more naturally notice that kind of stuff. But here's the thing. None of us can read minds. None of us can. So when I hear people say, I'm really good at reading people, I sometimes feel like saying, and I don't because I have more emotional intelligence than this, but I feel like saying, actually, you're not good at it. The fact that you think you're awesome at it means you suck at it. <laughs> you just lack humility. You make up stories about situations and people like we all tend to do, and it's, it's, it's just that you don't have enough humility to realize that your story might be wrong. Like you live as if every story you make up in your mind is reality. It takes humility, right? It takes humility to ask questions and to be open-minded and to not land on what's happening in a situation. And we have to ask ourselves, like, what do I actually know here? And then realize there might be something going on that I don't understand. So maybe I should hold a theory, because we all have theories. You have to have a theory. But maybe I should hold my theory very loosely. In fact, Jen and I, we've, kinda, we've been talking about this for years. And, and we've started to kind of use the, this lingo in the way that we process stuff with each other sometimes. And with our kids, and even with some of you guys. And some of you, you've heard this kind of stuff from us before. Because Jen and I will both do this. We'll say something like, hey, this thing happened, or I noticed something, and the story that I'm telling myself is, and we share the story, like, here's what I think might be going on, but then we ask, is that true? Is that what's going on, or is maybe there's something else happening here? And we, we have found that to be actually super helpful in all kinds of circumstances. Like one of the quickest ways to get into relational hot water is to do the mind read thing, to have an interaction or see a scenario and then make up a story. And then instead of verifying, then we just live as if the story is true. The story could be, this person doesn't like me. Could be that this person is mean. 
This person is shallow. This person is trying to hurt me. This person thinks I'm dumb. This person is selfish. This person doesn't care about me. Assumptions like these, they damage relationships and they damage community. So we have to be very, very careful about the stories that we tell ourselves without verifying that, they're, that they represent reality. Okay, a second issue, second issue that damages community is unmet expectations, right? Unmet expectations wreak havoc on relationships or on communities. People leave their jobs over unmet expectations. Life groups stop meeting because of unmet expectations. Churches split over unmet expectations. Families stop talking over unmet expectations. Couples divorce over unmet expectations. And the, the really mischievous thing about expectations is that very often we don't know that we have expectations. We don't even know we have them until they go unmet. They, they tend to live in our subconscious until someone disappoints us, right? I've talked about this a lot. My, like my first, our first year or two of, of marriage was, here's, here's how I could describe it to you guys. It was like an adventure in unmet expectations, mostly for Jen. <laughs> so to, to sort of summarize our first year of marriage, it, here's how I summarize it. Jen was like, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> wait, wait, what do, you, what do you mean? For instance, one night very early on in our marriage, been married for maybe a couple weeks, maybe a month. And we're in bed and we're, you know, we're, I'm thinking that we're going to be drifting off to sleep. But Jen starts sighing. <sighs> and she's just rolling around and, and she's kind of thrashing around. And, and I, so, I, uh, you know, like I said, I, I pick up on feelings, you know. I, I am an expert at reading people. And so I, I, I was, I, I, I said, baby, you, you seem upset. Did, did I do something? What, what's going on? And so she said, I just, I don't feel very close to you. I, I don't feel like you love me. And I was like, whoa, what did I do to communicate that? That's like a really, really big deal. What do you mean? And she said, well, I thought that when we go to bed, you know, like living together now and being married and all, we would just hold hands every night until we peacefully drift off to sleep. And I was like, are you freaking serious? <laughs> Which wasn't really the right thing to say, you know, in the moment. But I'm like, listen, I, I do love you. I do, but I, I, babe, I can't fall asleep like that. Maybe like... Maybe if we're on vacation, we don't have to get up in the morning and it's just chill, but I can't do that every night. That's not, I can't, every night? The first year was just filled with unmet expectations and I was violating expectations right and left that I didn't even know existed and usually Jen didn't know they existed either until they were violated and then she's like, what? So, so we had this thing going on and, and this is what makes expectations so dangerous in relationships, right? Expectations are often unconscious. And many of the expectations we carry and hold on to, they live in our subconscious until they go unmet, and then they, when they go unmet, then they explode into our consciousness. Another problem is they can be unrealistic. 
Like, like you, here's, you know, like holding hands as we drift off to sleep every night. Uh, or here's another one. Like you can get into a life group with like full-blown adults that have adult responsibilities. And you can expect it to feel like the small group that you had when you were in college. It's like in college, everyone, they all hung out together every night outside of the group and they went to movies together and they went to bars together and they, and they, just, they just ate popcorn together and they played ultimate Frisbee together. And, it was, and, and so you come into this group and you think, oh, this group, I finally I'm in a group, this group is gonna be just like that. Uh, my group is gonna feel like the show Friends, right? And, and it's just gonna be just like that because everyone's gonna hang out just like in college. But here's the thing, the people in like your adult group, they're adults and they have kids and jobs and responsibilities and so what happens is you get into the group and you think you know you spend like two weeks in there and you're like man you guys suck (laughs) I mean like this doesn't hold a candle to my college group what's the matter with you guys this church sucks you suck I'm out of here well yeah like the circumstances were very very different then so sometimes our expectations can be can be unrealistic another problem is that often our expectations are unspoken. Uh, a lot of times we have expectations, but we never told anybody about them. So we have an expectation that our spouse or a friend or a boss would do whatever it is, but we never told them. And so it's a little bit unfair to get upset when they have no idea, right? And then lastly, we often operate with expectations that are unagreed upon. So it's, it's not enough even to just vocalize the expectations. Right? Other people need to agree to them. We need to allow other people to weigh in and give them some say-so and decide that, that they actually want to be a part of this arrangement, whatever we think it ought to be. Like You're like, it's just like, Here, here's what I was thinking. Does this seem doable to you? Do, do you agree to, to entering into this with me? Does this seem good to you? And the better we can communicate expectations and get consensus, the less relational conflict and frustration we will experience. Now, this is true in life groups. Like, what are we here to do? What should this look like? What, what, what goes on in a life group? This is true in marriage. This is true in parenting with kids. If you have an expectation of your kids to behave a certain way, you should tell them. Um, this is true with work and with employees. This is true of any kind of community. Expectations are normal, and we all have them. We can't help it. But they can burn us, okay, if they look like this, if this is what's going on. On the other hand, expectations don't burn us if they are conscious, realistic, spoken, and agreed upon, right? Now, some of you are thinking, that seems like a lot of work. And I just want to say, yes, being an adult is a lot of work. Being an emotionally mature, healthy adult, it takes work. To be in a really good marriage takes work. To be in a really good life group takes work. To be in a really good church takes work. Okay, now for the rest of this message, I want to I take a hard right-hand turn. Here we go. By the way, did you guys notice that Trevor and I are like twinning with our outfits today? We got the maroon tops and the jeans, and we even got gray shoes on. Can we get that in the camera? Okay, for the, re- for the rest of the message, by the way, you crushed announcements too, dude. It was so good. Gosh. Okay, for the rest of the message, I, I want to take a little bit of a turn. 
Unmet expectations are a big deal, and they can be a big deal in any relationship. So what I want us to think about for the rest of the message is this. What happens when God doesn't meet my expectations? This is an interesting question, because what tends to happen is we, hear, we tend to hear something about God. Maybe it's like, like God is faithful. Like, sweet, God is faithful. And then we assume that God will be faithful. That means that, that God has to behave in a very specific way in our lives. Like maybe we assume that, well, if God is faithful, then if, if, if when I work really hard, God will give me the outcome that I want. Like I'll get the job or the promotion or the success that I want, right? Or, or it's like I, I expect God to make me relatively happy, whatever that means, and stable. And I should never have to experience too much suffering, at least not all at once. And when I do go through suffering, I expect it to, to turn into glory like really, really fast. Like I'm suffering and then by that night it resolves like a 30-minute sitcom, right? And it just resolves itself and I'm just like, oh my gosh, I gotta call my best friend. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I learned this crazy thing through, through my horrific suffering today. It was awesome. I just, I just, let's get real. God will not meet all your expectations. So what then? And in what's left today, I, I just want to look at a story about two people in Mark chapter 5 who face this very situation. They face disappointment. They face unmet expectations. The first character is a guy named Jairus. And Jairus is a desperate father. Here's the scene. Mark 5, starting in verse 21, says, When Jesus had, gained, had, had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. So Jairus comes to Jesus with a plan. He has a plan. And he sees a very specific way that this whole thing is going to play out. His 12-year-old daughter is on the verge of death, and he comes to Jesus to get him to go home with him, get him into his house, and heal his 12-year-old daughter before she dies. If he can just get Jesus into his home, right, then maybe. Now, in another account, a, a different man comes to Jesus, and he's got a servant at home that's sick. And that guy didn't ask Jesus to come to his house. He simply said, Jesus, just, just say that. I know you're a man of authority. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. You don't even need to come. Just, just say the word. And Jesus has that kind of power, right? He doesn't need to go. So for that man, Jesus, Jesus was like, awesome. And Jesus healed this guy's servant from afar. But Jairus, he's got a vision. He has an expectation for how this is going to go. His daughter is very sick. She's dying, and he's going to get Jesus, and he's going to bring Jesus back to his house, and Jesus is going to heal her. So he says to Jesus, I, I need you to physically come to my house, and I need you to lay hands on my daughter so that she can be healed. And Jesus doesn't argue with the plan. He's, he's like, okay, and he goes. Okay, but on the way, another character enters the story, and she has a dream of her own. So they're walking to Jairus' house, and there's this massive crowd, right? And it says, And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. 
She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she got worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? Okay, so this gets super awkward. Jesus is trying to get to Jairus' house, right? That's, that's where they're going. He's trying to get to Jairus' house, but the crowds following Jesus are huge, and it's, they're, they're just pressing in on him. It's like Jesus is trying to walk to Jairus' house through a mosh pit, right? And this, this woman thinks, well, if somehow I can just get to Jesus and I can just touch like the hem of his cloak or, or just even a thread hanging off, then, then I can be healed, and somehow she fights her way, even though she's sick, she fights her way through the crowd and she touches his clothes. And at that very moment, she feels it in her body and she's healed. But Jesus is like, whoa, wait a minute, stop. Who just touched me? No, really, who just touched me? And the disciples are like, what do you mean? Like, Jesus, everyone is touching you. And I'm guessing based on by the, like the, his tone, there's people that were, they had basically had their cheek pressed up against his face. They're like, I wasn't touching you, man. <laughs> he's like, no, no, that's not what I, I, he's like, yeah, I know people are touching me. No, I mean, I mean, power just went out from me. Okay, verse 37. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. He's like looking around and he's, he's making a thing of this. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. Trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So Jesus stops the parade to Jairus' house because he has to identify the person that just got healed. And he just keeps asking and everyone's just staring at him like, and finally, this woman is like, I, I guess I need to. And so she, she runs up and she falls at his feet and she tells her story. Okay, now imagine, put yourself in Jairus' shoes for a minute. You don't have time for delays, right? You need Jesus to get, you need him to get to your house and save your daughter right now. But this whole thing has been delayed. It's super upsetting. So look at what happens, verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Now we find out he's a synagogue leader. It's like a big deal. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not allow Anyone, he did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. 
Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. Now, what I want you to see in this story is that both Jairus and this woman, they come to Jesus with expectations. This woman wanted a healing, but she wanted it to be like a drive-by healing. Like, she's like, I, I want to come by, and I want to touch your garment, and, I, and, then, and then, like, I want to be gone, right? I don't want to, like, deal with you. I, I, I don't want to know you. I don't, I don't want to talk with you. Like, I, I, I want to show up to church, and I just want to sit in the back. And, and, and I want you to heal me, and then I want to be gone. And I don't want to interact with other people or, or sit down for brunch around a table with, like, seven people with a casserole. Um, <laughs> I just, I just like, I just like want you to, I just want you to heal me and then I'm, and I'm gone. But Jesus is like, no, that's not how this thing is going to go today. You're going public. And, and I want you to know that you're, I, I want you to know that you're, then he makes her go public. Now, Jairus was trying to get a healing. He was there to get a healing. But what he got was a resurrection. His daughter died, and Jesus goes then and raises her from the dead. Now, both of them go to Jesus, and within minutes, all of their plans are just like thrown out the window. But this is, you guys, this is what following Jesus is like. Like you make plans for your life, and you expect Jesus to come, a, come along and, and to accompany you on your terms. Right? It, but it never works out that way. It just, it never does. You know, my, my plan for Jesus when, when I decided to give my life to him, my plan was for him to heal my shoulder so that I could pitch and play baseball again. I, I just like, I wanted to play baseball. I even went to this like really charismatic church. It's a vineyard church, you guys. Oh man, it's a vineyard church, so charismatic. And they laid hands on me and they prayed for me and people would come and prophesy over me and then they would lay hands on me and, and pray for me. But guess what? I never played in another baseball game again in my life, ever. And yet, Jesus has walked with me in deeper ways than I could have ever anticipated. Like, I wanted Jesus to do a couple of things for me. I wanted him to heal my shoulder. I, 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 in truth, I wanted him to help me, like, navigate a couple of relationships. And, and I wanted him to help me overcome some addictions, some things in my life that I, I was embarrassed about. But Jesus wasn't interested in my agenda. Jesus wanted me to give him everything, not just my agenda. And, and this is the reality of placing your faith in Christ. You, you have to give him, you have to give him so much more than you plan, right? We, we have an agenda for him that involves like parts of our life, just bits like, oh, you know, I, I want my, healed, my heart to be healed from this relationship or, or I, wa I want to give you, I, I want to give you, I have a lot of uncertainty about my future and so I want to give you my future or I want to give you my career or I want to give you this heartbreak that I had over this thing or this, I want to give you this embarrassing habit and I want you to help me with this embarrassing habit and, and we give Jesus these little bits with these small things but Jesus is like, no. No, actually, I, I want your entire life. I, like, I want it all. And so here's how walking with Jesus ends up working. We give Jesus way more than we plan, but we get from Jesus way more than we ask or imagine. And this means that Jesus does not agree to our expectations. And so following Jesus takes us in directions 
that we never planned. And that involves a ton of fear for us. Right? It's scary to not be in control. I mean, can you imagine the fear? I mean, it says she was terribly afraid. Can you imagine the fear that gripped the heart of the woman like when Jesus stopped and he's like, all right, who touched me? I felt power leave me. Who did it? Or can you imagine the, the crippling fear and just, just like pain that Jairus must have felt when he got the message, your daughter is dead. Like, don't bother the teacher anymore. And yet Jesus said, don't be afraid, just, just believe, trust in me. And Jairus found out something extraordinary. With Jesus, even death is not the end. With Jesus, the end is never the end. Jairus wanted a healing. What he got was a resurrection, but that meant that first there had to be a death. And this is the scary part. The, score, the story, our story of our life, it never goes how we script it. And that means we all carry disappointment. Disappointment that we kind of wear everywhere we go. Disappointment that we wear in our spirituality, right? Disappointment that we feel when we show up to church. Disappointment that we feel when we show up to, to a life group. Disappointment is, is like this, this huge, real part of, of, of life. And I heard a quote recently that, that kind of rings true for me in a way. Um, it's from a spiritual sage named Ronald Rollheiser. And he writes this. He says, you have to forgive God for the way you thought your life was going to turn out. Now, that sounds kind of blasphemous. You're like, well, wait a minute. Like, from a theological standpoint, it's kind of off. Because God hasn't sinned against you or he hasn't sinned against me. From that standpoint, the idea of forgiving God is, is, kind, of, is kind of blasphemous. But, but from a, a, like from the truth of, 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 of what it feels like in our heart, of like our actual experience, I think this resonates a little bit. Because what a lot of us do is we hold God responsible for our disappointment. And we have this, this just ongoing low-grade contempt toward, toward him that just kind of follows us. Because we thought our life was going to turn out a certain way. We thought our career was going to turn out a certain way. We thought our marriage was going to turn out a certain way. We thought our kids were going to turn out a certain way. We thought that we, thought that, that we had this dream and we thought it was going to turn out a certain way and it hasn't and it's not going to. And so we hold in all of this bitterness like, God, what are you doing? And here's another thing. Sometimes when, when God doesn't meet uh, our expectations, then this goes to a whole other level. When my life doesn't turn out the way I hoped, then what happens is I can start telling myself a story about God. And these stories can keep me really distant from him. Like when we face disappointment, when God doesn't meet our expectations, I, I can just start to tell myself all kinds of stories, right? I could be like, well, God must be mad at me. Or clearly, God and I are not in a good place. Or God must be punishing me for, for this, this sin in my life. Or God must be trying to teach me a lesson, teach me something. Or God must be trying to get my attention with this pain and suffering because maybe I just haven't, I haven't been devoted to him enough or whatever it is. And those stories, they foster shame and they foster inadequacy and anger and guilt of all kinds. And those stories can create an artificial barrier between you and God. Well, you guys, we have to question those stories. We have to fight them. We have to be careful about telling ourselves stories about God. 
And so I just, I want to like kind of close by just speaking tenderly to those of you that really are facing a crippling kind of disappointment these days. Like if you're here today and, and your, your life has not turned out how you planned, maybe your marriage or something with one of your kids or your career or your health or something with your spouse or a dream that you had, but things have not turned out the way that you hoped. The, the story you tell yourself about God amidst that disappointment, it matters. And I don't know a, a better way to overcome lies than just like straight truth. Um, so if you're sitting here today and you're, you're wrestling with, with disappointment or you're just wrestling with, with maybe where you stand with God, I just want to close by, by like reading some truth over you. Um, and so this, is, this comes from Romans chapter 8. And I just want to invite you to maybe close your eyes and stand. Maybe stand first, then close your eyes. <laughs> stand and close your eyes. And maybe you want to just kind of have a posture of open hands just to receive and let these words reshape your story about God and about yourself. Um, this is Romans 8, and I'm reading from the message translation because I like how easy it is to just envision. We're starting Romans 8, verse 15. Paul writes this. This resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurously expectant, greeting God with a childlike, what's next, Papa? God's Spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. We know who He is and we know who we are father and children and we know we're going to get what's coming to us an unbelievable inheritance we go through exactly what christ goes through if we go through the hard times with him then we're certainly going to go through the good times with him that's why i don't think there's any comparison between the present hard times and the coming good times the created world itself can hardly wait for what's coming next everything in creation is being more or less held back God reigns it in until both creation and all the creatures are ready and can be released at the same moment into the glorious times ahead. Meanwhile, the joyful anticipation deepens. All around us, we observe a pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pangs. But it's not only around us, it's within us. The Spirit of God is arousing us within. We're also feeling the birth pangs. This sterile and these st sterile and barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. That is why waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging us, but the longer we wait, the larger we become and the more joyful our expectancy. Meanwhile, the moment we get tired in the waiting, God's Spirit is right alongside helping us. If we don't know how or what to pray, it doesn't matter. He does our praying in and for us, making prayer out of our wordless sighs and our aching groans. He knows far better than we know ourselves, knows our pregnant condition, and keeps us present before God. That's why we can be so sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is worked into something good. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape our lives 
of the, to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. The son stands first in the line of humanity he restored. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him. After God made that decision of what his children should be like, he followed it up by calling people by name. After he called them by name, he set them on a solid basis with himself. And then after getting them established, he stayed with them to the end, gloriously completing what he had done. So what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? Who would dare even point a finger? The one who died for us, who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of God at this very moment sticking up for us. Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There's no way. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing. None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. I am absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us.